take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Not much of an update to give you this week on activity because there wasn't a lot. The room is pretty much like it was last week uh, with all the incumbent horrors of sound issues. But John and Lee worked diligently yesterday and and got us something reasonable out of uh, what is mostly a mess when it comes to acoustics. So uh, if you hear me five or six times every time I say a word, well, it's, it's supposed to be that way, but it's down from 20 to 25 times that you would have heard the echo uh, yesterday. Our one example, we are looking at Jesus, that's my Jesus, knowing the one we worship, and we talked about our one king and our one priest and our, our one sacrifice, and today it is our one example. As, a, as, an, as an example of an example, I have a video this morning that will uh, take a little, just a few seconds of transition on the computer. So, John, if you've got the volume ready to go, Carol, you go ahead and make that work. Every so often, we highlight someone special from our community in the Someone You Ought to Know segment. This week, we share the story of one duo going for gold. The stage was set and the opportunity was right in front of them. He was young, hungry, excited about the sport. Jerome Avery describing his teammate David Brown's competitive spirit and determination. And that's a deadly, that's a deadly weapon right there. In order to understand where Brown's motivation on the track comes from, you have to go back to where his love for the sport first began. I discovered track at the Missouri School for the Blind. Diagnosed with Kawasaki disease at 15 months old, resulting in glaucoma, Brown would lose his sight by the age of 13, but he didn't lose his deadly weapons, his legs. Yes, I don't really realize how fast I'm running. But the world does. In 2014, he became the first totally blind runner to run under 11 seconds at the 100 meter dash, going 10.92 seconds. Two years later, and they're away. And tethered to his partner on the world's biggest stage, Brown and Avery seized the moment. For Brazil on the inside, but David Brown's going to take the part in big time. Winning gold in the 2016 Paralympic Games in Rio. 10-9-9. Now it's bigger than the both of us. You know, we we got a chance to really showcase what the Paralympic is doing, and, and we're now considered elite athletes. Now just months away from another gold medal opportunity in this summer's Paralympic Games, not even COVID-19 can slow down Team Bravery. But when I heard that the games weren't happening, I said to Jerome and my coach, so what time is the practice? Like David has always mentioned, we're going to train hard and be prepared no matter what. And I'm happy to report David Brown and Jerome Avery, Team Bravery, still hold the Paralympic title for fastest 100-meter dash. And me off. Oh, I turned me off. Sorry. <laughs> Making John scramble back there. He's like, what happened? It was me. Uh, it was a little hard to understand there, I think. David Brown ran an 11-second mile. 
10.92 is his record. Usain Bolt runs sub-10, 9.8, 9.9, and that's amazing. David Brown does it blind, completely blind, runs alongside his guide, Jerome Avery, who also runs the same mile. What did I say? Oh, mile, I'm sorry. I, I knew y'all were arguing with me, but I was like, no, it's 10.92 seconds. I That's not what y'all are arguing. Yes, 100 meters. I'm sorry. That would be impressive. 10-second mile. Yeah. We're <laughs> yeah, thank you for finally getting through to me that I was a moron. 10-second, uh, 11-second, uh, sub-11-second, 100-meter dash. Blind. So... I mean, just, just, just think of you in your house in the middle of the night when you don't want to turn the light on and, and, and disturb your spouse or another family member or something, and, and you're trying to get around your house when it's dark. And, and, and you're going slow. You're feeling. You don't want to kick the bed and break your pinky toe. And he runs that fast. But he can only do it. He can only stay in his lane. He can only know the direction he's supposed to go because of his guide, Jerome Avery, who is right there beside him. And I don't know if you noticed the, the, the I thought about this when I was watching it the second time. I didn't even know that in the Paralympics, blind people ran the 100-meter 100 100 sprint until like a week or two ago. I saw this video somewhere. When you run, of course... You're, when, when, or, or walk even, you're, if your left leg goes forward, your left arm goes back, right? And if you don't do that, you look weird. If you're one of these people that walks like this, everybody's going to look at you strange when you're going down the, the street or walking through the mall. These two guys have to run as a mirror image to each other. So I don't know what Jerome Avery's preferred starting position is, but if you notice, he starts in a mirror to what David Brown starts. Their starting blocks were a mirror image because David's arm can't go up, his left arm, I think he was on Jerome's right, David arm, David's left arm can't go up as Jerome's right arm goes back. They have to go together. Think of the synchronization that has to take place. For, for David Brown to be able to run these races. He does it all because of his example right next to him. He mirrors everything Jerome Avery does. Keep that image in your mind, because as we seek to know how to conduct ourselves in life, throughout life, in every arena of life, we focus on our one example, Jesus. We mirror him. As he moves, we move. When he pushes us to the side, and that's how David stays in his lane, because Jerome's right there. As he will feel the gentle pressure of Jerome moving one way or the other. As Jerome gets a little away from him, David will veer and follow him. He follows his example. Well, that's what we see in 1 Timothy 3. 14 through 16, we see our example. Follow along with me there as we read. 
Paul writes to, to Timothy, the pastor at First Baptist Church, Ephesus, or maybe it was like uh, Fellowship Community Church, who knows, it was probably still Baptist. He says, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, but if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. And I'm going to stop here for just a second because every time I've read this passage, I've said it this way, and I'm going to say it this way again this morning. The mystery of godliness is great, colon. We're waiting for the list. What does godliness look like? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, Seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the word, taken up in glory. Six descriptors. It is a list, but it's not a list of do's and don'ts. Now Paul is writing, and he says in verse 15, it, well he says in verse 14, I write these things hoping to come to you soon, but he knows he might not be able to. So in verse 15 he tells him, so if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. Paul is writing for proper conduct. He tells Timothy that and us that in verse 15. That was his whole purpose. And he is referencing back uh, the, the first half of the letter which was much more practical on some how-to things in the congregation, and he will get to the more, uh, um, uh, let's see, not practical, more theological, but also uh, heart sort of responses in chapters 3 through 6 of, of uh, 1 Timothy. He's, he's splitting it in the middle now. He's, he's reminding him of what he has done and what he will do. The purpose of writing was conduct. So if you get a conduct grade in middle, uh, elementary school or grade school, it's all based on primarily what you did and what you didn't do. I always got negative marks on makes good use of time. I remember that so well on my second and third grade report cards, I, I was, it was just negative, negative. We only got pluses or minuses. That's how we got graded where I went to school. Makes good use of time. Negative, negative, negative. What's that, what that meant was I'd get done with my work, probably in a hurry. It may have been right. It might not have. I, I, I probably rushed through it. It was probably right, but still, I rushed through it. And then, rather than pull out my little a weekly reader book that I got or, or, or the, the reading book or whatever. Hey, what are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? Teach what, what we could do. All over the place. I did not make good use of my time. So the conduct, and then there were other uh, activities that you were or weren't supposed to do. Usually were supposed to do, and you did them well, you did them negatively. This is not a list of activities. And that's why I point out that colon there. We're expecting a list. We have a, a list of six, I mean, depending on your Bible, it's probably broken up into verses almost, and there are six of them. 
it's not a list of behaviors. It, it's a realm of living. Paul then describes Jesus, but he doesn't describe Jesus like Jesus did or didn't do these things. He describes who Jesus was. He describes what Jesus was, not what Jesus did. Paul is pointing us to a realm of living, not a list of behaviors, and telling us that that is how we are to act, how we are to conduct ourselves, not behavior. That's why this isn't, some translations might have how people ought to behave, but that we have taken that word and meant behave, right? Settle down, behave. I've heard that once or twice in my life. This isn't that sort of conduct. This is conduct. This is how we are to be much less than what we are to do. And it's in God's household. Now, he's not talking about a building here. He's talking about a body, a family. As a matter of fact, that's why he uses the, the, the word household instead of in God's church, God's ecclesia. He's going to call us that here in just a second. But right now, it's not how you act at church, but how you act as a group of believers, God's family. We're very uh, careful. We, we have a lot of terms that we refer to ourselves in church as to describe ourselves. We're a church, we're a body, we're a group. But the, the phrase I try to use the most is a church family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is what the Bible says of us over and over and over. Now, of course, any family has an understood set of rules, rela uh, rules responsibilities, and relationships, and, and we get that, and we know that intuitively, and there are those aspects of what Paul is going to say and what he has said, but here... That's not what he's getting at as far as that list of rules. He's saying as God's household, as a living church inhabited by a living God. A household is a family. A household uh, of the household of God is that ecclesia, that church, that called out group of the living God. God is real and present in his church. That's the point he's making. God is not distant from his church. He is real and present in his church. And while we know that of God, we know him to be omnipresent everywhere at once, there is in his church, in a body of believers, when we come and we gather in worship, when we pray together, when we study God's word together, there is a uniqueness to his presence among us. And, and, and I don't know how to define or describe that. We, we know it, we sense it, we feel it, but to, to quantify it isn't, uh, isn't possible, but it happens where he is here in a way that we recognize and experience that we don't when we aren't gathered as a church family. But that feeling, that experience, that acknowledgement and knowledge of 
God in this situation is to carry over into the daily lives of believers. So while it is unique and different when we gather, it is not supposed to suddenly go away as soon as we walk out those doors. That's why the first slide, if you ever pay attention to the, the, the credits at the, the end of uh, the services, the announcements, the, the few announcement slides that roll at the end of the service, the first one says, you are now entering the mission field. You're not leaving church. You're going to the mission field. Church goes with you. You are still a member of God's household, and there is still an expectation of the conduct or the way you conduct your life, the realm of living. But Paul is still kind of warming us up to this idea. He's, he's, he's laying a foundation, and here he uses that very word. So conduct, how you're to conduct yourselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. We are, as the church, the home of truth. Now, that is not to say we are the home of the only truth. For example, one truth is, if you go out to your car right after church and you get underneath there and you remove the plug from, from your oil pan and you let all the oil drain out of that pan and then you start your car and, and you put it in gear and you head down the road within... How long, Joe, is that engine going to take to lock up? Five minutes, your engine will lock up. That is a truth about your vehicle. That truth will not be found in Scripture. There's no mechanics manual in Scripture on how to take care of your car. So, the Bible isn't the only place for truth. But it is the place for ultimate truth. It is the place for truth about us, who we are, and we as the church are the ones that are the, uh, we are, uh, the church is the home of that church. There is no place where we can find the fundamental truth about ourselves, which is that we are great sinners loved by a great God, offered great grace through a great Savior. That truth will not be found in a mechanics manual or any philosophy. It will only be found in Scripture. And we, Paul says, are the home of that truth. We are the pillar and foundation. Those two words give us the image of permanence and strength and immovability. The gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus' church because we are the home of truth. If we hold to a belief system and a philosophy that is flimsy and, and fails in the face of other philosophies, other ideas, then we are not a place of truth. We are a place of maybes. But that's not who we are. We have permanence, the pillar and the foundation. We have strength, we have immovability. The pillar here is representative of visible support. Working, going into the, uh, the nursery area of the children's building the last couple of weeks, they've, they've painted that first floor now, and I think, I think the painting is about done. 
I haven't gone over there in some time. Uh, my children haven't been nursery age for quite a while now. So to go in there again and watch all the things that are doing, they're doing, especially when all the stuff's pulled out, you notice that there are some pillars in some odd places in some of those rooms, specifically the northwest room, the, the one on this corner right here. You go in there, there's a fake closet. Well, I only say it's fake because the wall only goes up to a certain height in that room for this long closet. <clears throat> the air conditioning vent blows. I, I guess this is why they don't have the wall there, so the a AC can blow over that. But right there, I think maybe built into the wall now, is a, is a pillar, is a column. And I want to say in the next room, there's another one out by itself. Somebody help me out that goes in there a lot more than us. In the next room, there's a column just kind of off to the, uh, not far from the edge, from the wall, but it's still in the middle of the floor. Well, it would be nice aesthetically if we could knock those things out. Chip and Joanna do it all the time, right? They, they go into a house and Joanna says, I don't like that wall, and Chip says, demo day, and they just take the wall down like it's no big deal. And you're going, wait a minute, house fall in. Well, they know something, right? And you always see them, they put these big support beams, that pillar meant something. Those pillars mean something. I mean, we, we've, we've got them here. You can see them right here. These pillars mean something. They are visible support. We as a church are visible supporters of the truth. We as a church family, we as individuals, when we hold to the truth, when we speak God's biblical truth, then we are visible pillars holding that up to the world. There are also some metaphorical ideas in this use of pillar. The readers might have thought back to when uh, in the Exodus, God showed himself as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He was still a pillar of truth, visible to the people. Paul in Galatians 2.9 calls the leaders of the church in Jerusalem pillars of the church. He also uses the word foundation. So now we've got that visible structure, but nobody, we rarely see this concrete unless it's after a hurricane. We see the nice pretty floor, whether it's carpeting or tile or whatever. And that carpeting and tile, we can change whenever we can afford it or have to or, or however it comes about. We, change, we rip that up and we put something down. But what never changes is this concrete. If, if we keep this building and we never move from this site, this room, this building, we could put a ceiling and make an attic, we could slice it up into rooms, we could do any number of things in here, but what will likely never change is this concrete. The foundation tells us, it shows us uh, firmness and steadfastness. So while we are a visible pillar, a visible support of the truth, we are also a firm, steadfast 
home of the truth. It is where the truth can always be found. It is where the truth never changes. It's where we never water down the fact that we are sinners bound for hell that can only be saved by the blood of Jesus. We never back down from that truth because we as a church are the foundation of that, firm and steadfast. This is God's truth. We are the home of God's truth, pillar and foundation of biblical truth and the truth of the gospel. That is what we stand on. Not philosophies or political systems or any one person or any one idea where those things veer from biblical truth, we reject them. And where they reiterate biblical truth, we accept them. Not based on who said it or why they said it, but on what God's word has to say about it. And then verse 16, now we get to the meat of it. Paul has prepared us, let us know what's coming, his whole purpose for writing. And he says in verse 16, And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. Godliness is exemplified in verse 16. Now when he says certainly here, most certainly in in the CSB, he uses that phrase because he is expecting a positive response. He's not asking a question, he's making a statement. And he expects when he makes that statement to get the little amen or heart logos on the screen. Or for people to say, that's right, or come on, or preach it, there we go. Or whatever it might say. One might say from their chair. He is expecting no argument from the people when he says the mystery of godliness is great. Because we all understand that. When we seek to achieve godliness in our lives, we understand that that mystery of how to do so is great. How do I do the things I'm supposed to do and not do the things I'm not supposed to do? How do I overcome my own sin nature, even as a believer? We can all say amen to Paul when he says the mystery of godliness is great. But then what follows, of course, and I've already touched on this, so I want, but I want to touch on it again. There is a conspicuous absence of a list of rules. It, he could have dropped the Ten Commandments here, right? He could have said something like what he said in Galatians 5.22, and he gives us the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He could, have, he could have said that. He could have said any number of things, but instead he puts a poem about Jesus. Paul, what kind of hippie are you? I was talking to uh, somebody this week about that very idea that This passage, and this is what has blown my mind for now a few weeks as I've prepared this message. It's not a list. Paul, I can do a list. I mean, I can't do it. I'll fail at it. But at least I know what I'm failing at. I knew when the teacher gave me a minus sign on makes good use of time, I knew all the ways in the previous six weeks or whatever it was, I had not made good use of my time. That made sense to me. So Paul, give me a list. And if I don't get them all, I understand that, but at least I know what I failed at. And he doesn't. He gives us 
about, uh, gives us a poem about Jesus. And one final point to make before we get into this list of six. One translator put, translates this verse differently. He uh, rearranges the words just a little bit and says, Great is the mystery of godliness. Now remember, Timothy is the pastor of a church in Ephesus. And this should ring some bells for you. Obviously, the letter to the church uh, in Ephesus, Ephesians. But if we think back to when we worked through Acts, and you think back to uh, Paul's greatest success, greatest missionary success was Ephesus. This is where the magicians came out and were voluntarily burning their books of spells because they had heard from other magicians, other people, about the gospel that Paul was preaching. He had not preached to them directly. It was a revival that was sweeping this particular group. But a riot started. After he made the decision to go to Jerusalem, a riot started, and the the battle cry of the riot in Acts chapter 19 is, Great is Artemis of the the Ephesians. Right, because he was messing with their income. They made little silver uh, uh, idols that they, they bought and worshipped at home. And, and when people come to Jesus, they stop doing that. And that messes with some folks', some folks pocketbooks. And we don't like that. You know, if Jesus is fine, just don't mess with my money. Well, Christians say that too, by the way, but that's another sermon Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, they would say. And Paul here, in writing to the pastor, Timothy, in the church in Ephesus, he says, not great is Artemis of the Ephesians, but great is the mystery of godliness. He repudiates their battle cry. And then he proceeds to tell us that Jesus is the center of our godliness. You've, most of you, I'm sure, remember, and if you don't, I'm going to remind you that when you were in school, they taught you that the study of anything, biology is the study of life, geology is the study of geos, rocks, uh, when, you know, uh, climatology is the study of the climate. Well, Christology and the first three uh, verses here, the stanzas of this poem, are Christology, who Jesus is. And you're thinking, wait, Michael, that was just your introduction? No, it was Paul's introduction. I just had to explain it to you. So, the poem about Jesus, the, the, the center of this letter, the mystery of godliness is, number one, Jesus, who had or who was or who experienced demoted deity. Demoted deity. Paul says he was manifested in the flesh. Now, just a few weeks ago, and maybe last week and the week before, we have been talking about Jesus' humanity over and over and over. Jesus was human like us, and his deity was demoted. He did not lose his deity. We've talked about that before. He did not become any less God, but he became fully man while also fully God, and God did something in him to make that work that we can neither understand nor fully explain. But we know he was human 
just like us. He was manifested in the flesh. His deity was demoted to us. And when Paul uses this phrase, he is talking about from birth to the cross. All of it, as the Gospels show us, is an example to us. We see Jesus teaching. We, we see him at 12 years old teaching in the temple. The people who should have known the stuff and they're all amazed. And all the way through his three years up to the cross and his death on it, it is an example to us. In this demoted deity, though, we find a celebration of Emmanuel, God with us, what was promised from the prophet Isaiah. It is a celebration of God with us. And the cross, though it's not mentioned in this phrase, is understood as the purpose and climax of his demoted deity, of this manifestation of his flesh. So this morning, our example begins in his humanity. When we look to Jesus, we first see, Paul wants us to anyway, his humanity. We remember that he was tempted and tried as we are, yet without sin. And this is an aside here. This is not part of the sermon. I miss the children I have gotten used to the noise. Y'all are some quiet folks. And the kids, the constant pencils, and because I, I keep looking up, I saw, is everybody asleep? Thank you. That is much better. Now I've got a little something to, to, to talk over. I, I, I don't feel like I'm yelling now. I did not, I just, it struck, I, for about 10 minutes I've been wondering, what is wrong? And that's what it is. This, the children noise is gone. So anyway, kids, we miss you, and we can't wait for y'all to get back. So his, first, Paul shows us his demoted deity. Again, not a list of what to do or what not to do, but Jesus is human. Secondly, we see Jesus' demonstrated innocence. Paul says he was vindicated in the Spirit. So we've got his life from birth to cross to death, but death was not the end. Death is overcome by resurrection. Death says Jesus was guilty. Death says he received a punishment, and he did. But death says that he deserved everything he got. But when he was resurrected, when God brought him out of the tomb, he demonstrated, no, he didn't deserve that. No, he did not sin. No, he is not going to stay there. No, he is not separated from me. In fact, death being overcome shows that Jesus is innocent. And, 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 and in fact, Jesus' humanity is completed by achieving its final destination. We will be raised one day to life with Jesus in heaven or to an eternity separated from God in hell, a Christless hell. But his humanity in going through all of the stages, his manifestation of the flesh in that first, uh, first line, is completed by going through this death, but then being resurrected. So if we look at the life of Jesus, if we begin at the beginning and go to the resurrection, we see the life of Jesus as a pattern for us just like Jerome Gray is to David Brown. A pattern for him to 
run next to, to respond to when the push is this way or the pull is the other. Jesus is a pattern and he is the context of the gospel that fits us to that pattern. So not only do we look at him and pattern our lives after him, but when we understand him, we understand the gospel. When we know him better, we know the gospel better. And it is the internalization of the gospel, it is the internalization of Christ that then conforms us to the pattern of Christ. So we examine him to see what he is doing and we do that, but we get to know him better so that we internalize him and then we are in turn equipped to follow his example. He's not just an example. Jerome doesn't just get out, or rather David doesn't just show up one day, hear about Jerome running up and down the track and go, oh, I'm going to follow his example and start running up and down the track. He, he practices. They have a relationship. He has, uh, uh, David has internalized what needs to be done in order to follow Jerome as his example. They have to, uh, they don't work together. It's not a, 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 an equality relationship. David depends on Jerome. He has to trust Jerome, and he has to have the relationship that allows him to run side by side with him to, at such a high level. If we internalize, we must internalize the relationship with Jesus, and then we run alongside him, and we mirror his moves, but we, we talk to each other, we know each other better, we spend time together and know each other more, then we are more able to match his movements and we begin to set records in our Christian life. In Jesus' demonstrated innocence, we see our demonstrated innocence. We are washed from our sin and free from the power of that sin. So we are forgiven, but then we are no longer beholden to the sin that so easily entangles us. We see displayed victory, number three, where he says that Jesus was seen by angels. The Son, he was seen by angels. I, I, I get this image, and this is a horrible Horrible analogy, okay? I know that. Don't, don't stone me at the end of the service. But when a, when a guy wants a girl to notice him, they dress nice, they, they fix their hair, and, 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 but that might not be enough. It might be across the room or whatever. No, no that guy's going to walk in front of her as, as, as many times as he can. And if it, you know... It's to the Coke machine, he's, you know, and then probably to the bathroom as many times as he's going to, he, just as many times as he can, make sure he is seen. Now, very, very uh, uh, selfish reasons for him, and this is why my analogy doesn't work great, but Jesus was going to make sure the angels saw him. He made sure the angels knew, the, the powers in heaven, the heavenly court 
saw him. Paul is using this as a uh, a term to express that all creation saw his defeat of death. He, he uses a, a short phrase, seen by angels, but he had already been seen by people. He spent the 40 days on earth. Now he has been seen by the angels. He has been presented as the victorious son. He has been, he has been displayed as the one who overcame death, who defeated death. And while Paul is most certainly referencing good angels here, that's the idea, we're talking about the heavenly courts, know absolutely that the evil powers, the principalities that Paul talks about in Ephesians, they saw it too. I think that's Paul's point. Again, Jesus' victory was displayed for everyone to see. His victory was obvious his victory was sure his victory was uh, easily seen and when we look at Jesus when we are attempting to understand this great mystery of godliness one way that we understand godliness is that we know that we have victory over that which would ensnare us when Jesus was declared victorious. We who will trust him, we who will put our faith in him, we who will believe that he can save us from our sins, we too are displayed as victorious. We are now victorious over sin. Number four, we see a declared gospel. Now we get into missiology. First one was Christology, the study of Christ. Now it is missiology, the study of missions. And Paul has divided the two up, but they are not divisible. You cannot have good missiology without good Christology. And if you understand Christ, you are going to be on mission. They go together, and Paul knows that. He was preached among the nations, Paul says. The purpose or the, the point Paul is making here is that lost humanity experiences the person of Jesus with the shared message of his salvific work, the work that saves. When we share the mission, or when we share the message of Jesus, people who hear that message experience Jesus. The declared gospel is not just a message of words. It cannot be done without words, but it isn't just a message of words. It is a heart change. It is a drawing of the Holy Spirit. It is a quickening of the soul. It is a warming of the, the heart. It is a, a, an instant where you don't just hear words, but your entire being responds to the message that you're hearing. And lost humanity experiences that in the person of Jesus when we share the message of the gospel. And Paul says it's preached among the nations. The reach of the gospel is to all people, all nations. There is no one who is excluded from the scope of the gospel. And for three years, Jesus preached his own message. He preached his message of the kingdom. He preached his message of repentance. He told us to not stay in our sin but to follow him, to take up our cross, to come and see. Jesus 
called us. And our mandate and our example is to share Jesus with the world as he shared himself, as he declared his gospel himself, we are to declare the gospel as his followers did in those years after his ascension. Jesus, he was deemed true, number five. He was deemed true. He was believed on in the world. The message of the gospel was received and effective. Now, you have very little to do with the effectiveness of the gospel. Yes, we can damage its potency sometimes by our actions. When we are not the pillar and foundation of truth, then the gospel sometimes loses its effect as Gandhi is credited with saying, I would believe in your Christ if it weren't for you Christians. That's more common than it should be. But the fact is, we cannot add to nor take away from the effectiveness of the gospel message. That belongs to God. That is His realm. Our realm is to preach it. And when we preach it, people will believe it. How many? I don't know. All of them? No. Some of them? Probably. A few of them? Almost definitely. But we're not concerned about results. We're concerned about faithfulness. Jesus told us when he is lifted up, he draws people to himself. So we, as the church, the household of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth, must lift up that truth. And that truth is Jesus. That truth is the gospel. And, and I ask this as a real question. Do you realize how little work you ha actually have to do to share the gospel. You have no responsibility for the outcome. You can't save anybody. You're not preaching you. You're preaching Jesus. All you have to do is share the message of the gospel. You actually have very little to do. But for belief to happen, for someone to respond in faith, declaration has to happen First, for the belief to occur, the message has to be heard, and our job isn't over yet. This preached among the nations, believed on in the world, is talking about something that is ongoing, something that still has to happen, has not yet been completed. The job is still there before us. But if we will do what we should, if we will see our example, if we will follow him, if we will run alongside him, mirroring him as we go, a life lived in that example of Christ will be a living example of the truth of the gospel. There will be no 
barrier put up by us because people look at us and say, I hear the gospel you preach, but I don't see it in your life. If we are following Jesus, the example, if we are taking who he is and making that who we are, not just blindly following a list of rules and yelling at the world because they don't follow those rules, but if we will imitate Christ, be like Christ and internalize Christ and live that example, we will be a living example of the truth of the gospel and there will be no barrier put up by us. And that would be a wonderful position to be in. Lastly, Paul says of Jesus, the sixth phrase, he was taken up in glory or delivered uproariously, as I put it. Now, glory here is a description, not a location. It's not a place. It's not taken to glory, but it is how he was taken. The, the display of his victorious humanity, we saw that when he was vindicated in the spirit, the second line, is tied to this glorification of his divinity. They both occurred. He is glorified as God, the Son, the second person of the, the Trinity. Jesus exa is exalted here by God for his victory that was, in, uh, that was accomplished by his obedience. He was obedient even to, the, uh, 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 to death, even death on the cross. And he was exalted for that victory. Now, we're certainly going to have glorified bodies at some day, but through our obedience to Christ and by living his example we glorify Christ. Christ is glorified. We do not glorify ourselves. We deliver him uproariously to those who have never heard the name of Jesus or have never trusted him as Savior. And yes, I believe we will be honored now by God when we live the example of Jesus. We will see glory. We will be honored. We will Honestly, we'll be honored just that somebody came to Jesus because we shared the message. That will, all, that will be all the honor we need. This poem, this mystery of godliness that Paul wrote, this is what we are to be as Christians. The word Christian actually means little Christ. Not little God's not, not that we become gods, but that we look like him. We are a mirror image of him running alongside. When people look at us, they see who Jesus is. When I was in elementary school getting those negative marks for makes good use of time, my brother and I went to the same school. At the time, it was a, a private school, and he had been there since uh, kindergarten or first grade, and he's six years older than me. So everywhere I went, I was little Bruce. Because I looked enough like him, at least they thought, that, that, that I should have that name, Little Bruce. Now, I didn't call myself Brucean um, or anything like that, Little Bruce. But that is the idea here, that we look so much like Jesus that we're called Little Christs. That this is what we are to be. This is our hope. This progression of verses, this is our hope as we move through life and the world as believers, weakness, suffering, and death are not our end, but victory, vindication, and glorification is where we end up. This is our responsibility. 
to live this example, preaching so that people believe the gospel, living so that people see the gospel in us. But that doesn't mean that we get to preach the gospel and sometimes use words. That's a stupid quote that God never said anyway. We don't preach the gospel without using words, but we back the gospel up with the lives that we live. This is us reconciled with God through Christ into a unified relationship with him and each other. This passage shows that reconciliation and unity. This is our life. It begins with Jesus, we share Jesus, and it ends with Jesus. That is the life we live. One theologian summarized it this way. He said, at present, the church is to identify with the experience of Christ in suffering and witness, its hope made sure, and purpose for doing so, grounded in the fact of his resurrection, vindication, and glorious exaltation. We live like Jesus knowing that one day we will get to be like Jesus. This is our one example to follow. This is my Jesus. This morning, he can be your Jesus too. David could never follow the example of Jerome until they had the relationship. Some random guy come up to you and say, hey, can I wrap this little thing around your wrist and wrap it around my wrist and you go run really fast and I'll run with you? You've never met the guy. You're going to be like, no. I don't think that's going to happen because I don't run ever at all anyway. And no, just because that's weird. But because of the relationship, they run. Because of the relationship, David has the example of Jerome. You cannot follow the example of Christ without a relationship with Christ. You may want to be like him. You may hear his teaching and say, man, he's a great guy and I want to be like him. You can't. You will fail. You'll never do it because you cannot be an example of his without being a disciple of his and having that relationship. And that begins by admitting that you're a sinner, that you have failed, that you have broken God's law. We all have, and we all have to come to that realization at some point. And then you have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That he has, uh, say, can save you from your sin. That he has taken the punishment for that sin. And he has given you freedom from that sin. If you will merely, merely believe and choose to follow him. Choose to make him your savior. And that choosing comes out in different, is expressed in different ways. But something like putting that into words. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And today, maybe I've heard you about you clearly for the first time. I want you to save me. I know that my sin means that I deserve hell and punishment, but I also know now that on the cross you took that sin for me and you were vindicated. You were proven innocent of that sin when you were resurrected. I want to know the salvation you offer, so I choose to follow you today. And in that moment of belief, the Holy Spirit comes in and takes control, takes hold, washes you clean, and you are His. And then you follow Him as an example. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for saving souls. Thank you for saving my soul. 
thank you for then giving us the example of a life of Jesus for us to emulate, to imitate, to run alongside of, to have the relationship with that allows us to be like him. Lord, may we, when we wonder what to do next or what this situation calls for, not just look for a list, not just go to Scripture and say, what does Scripture say I should do, but instead look to Jesus. The mystery of godliness. May we run alongside him. When he pushes, we go that direction. When he pulls, we come back that way. And Lord, if there's somebody here that's never trusted you, uh, trusted Jesus as their Savior, I pray today they would make that decision. They would admit their sinner, believe that Jesus can save them, and choose to follow him today. And then follow, become his disciple. Look to be, to follow him as an example. Live their lives for him. God, I pray that you would work on every heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we all have a response to make this morning. Maybe someone needs to accept Christ. Maybe you need to be baptized and you want to make that public. Maybe you want to join our church and make that public. Maybe you just need to work on something in the quietness of your own heart. You can uh, share it with us on a connection card if, we'd like, if you'd like us to pray for you or contact you. You can go and talk to Tom Bruce in the back. He's standing at the back door. We'll have a couple of deacons that are also back there that would love to talk to you. If you're watching online, you need to want to comment, send us a message, you can do that as well. But respond today as Jesus works on your heart. And this morning, we are bringing an offering of praise to him. We are thanking him. I guarantee you, David is extremely thankful for Jerome that runs by his side. Harder, has to run faster than David does so that the example can be followed. Let's praise Jesus for the example that we have this morning as we stand, as we sing, and God works on our hearts. Mm -hmm.